This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man whose favorite movie is Threat Level Midnight. He is the captain. You can call me Captain Scar, and it's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are sipping on $1.29 tea from Other Half Brewing. This is the follow-up to 99-cent tea and is brewed with two-row malt oats, flaked oats, and wheat, and then quadruple big blend of hops at the end. Garage grade, well, that would be a big five out of five bottle caps. And thanks and praise goes out to our awesome garage buddies. First up, cheers to Jamie in Britt, Iowa. And a big shout-out to Carrie in Royal Oak, Michigan. Next up, we have a royal shout-out to DeMarcus in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. A big shout-out to Chelsea in Vancouver, British Columbia. Next up, we have a cheers to Michelle in Plymouth, Minnesota. And last but certainly not least, a big cheers and thank you to our good friend Megan C. and Parts Unknown. If you want to help us out with next week's show, put a little money in that beer fund for next week's show. Go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. Or make sure you check out our store page if you want to step up your sexiness when you're when you're stuck all by yourself. <laughs> Get some that garage gear. We've been getting bugged lately for hoodies. I thought it's past... Uh, I thought you meant like the FBI was listening into us. No, no, no. I, we've been getting bugged because people want hoodies, and I thought it's past hoodie season. Apparently not. We have new. They're black with a red logo check them out at the store page and we also have these new ohio shirts team ohio check those out at truecrimegarage.com and that's enough of the business all right everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
On May 11th, 2007, Lico left work at Agway. This is a farm equipment and garden supply chain around 6 p.m. He and his best friend and co-worker and now roommate, Caleb McCauley, got into Lico's powder blue 1984 Toyota Celica Supra. For their evening, the two picked up a handle of vodka and cranberry juice for a little mixer. Five out of five bottle caps. Lico and Caleb drove down Route 116 toward Easton, traveling at 45 to 47 miles per hour. The speed limit in this area is 35 miles per hour. But soon, a police SUV, this is a Chevy Tahoe, that's heading toward them from the opposite direction, is spotted. So, Lico slowed down trying to avoid getting pulled over. Driving the Tahoe was none other than Corporal Bruce McKay. McKay saw that the registration sticker on the Toyota was expired. Officer McKay flipped on his lights, made a U-turn, and now he's chasing down the Toyota. According to Caleb, Lico pulled his car into the first available dirt turnout on the side of Route 116. We have dashboard Footage of this and this video will also be at our website at truecrimegarage.com. The two sat in the vehicle while Officer McKay called in a request for another unit to provide backup. On the call, McKay said he pulled over Lico Kenny. Sugar Hill PD heard this call and was quickly en route. Then Officer McKay got out of his vehicle. Now, for those that have not seen this video online, there is no audio for this portion of the video. And McKay is just off camera as he approaches the driver's side window, so we can't see him. All we know about this portion of the stop is what Caleb later told investigators. Caleb says he observed the following from the passenger seat. McKay asked for Lico's license and registration without telling him why he pulled him over. Lico refused and asked that another officer be called to the scene. Caleb says Officer McKay refused this request. Lico started making calls on his cell phone, but failed to get a hold of anyone. And then suddenly, Lico sped off, leaving Officer McKay's vehicle sitting in the dirt off of the side of Route 116. Caleb says Lico was concerned and afraid of the traffic stop and afraid of Officer McKay. Lico was en route to his family's property, which was not far away at all. This because Lico wanted there to be witnesses in case something should happen. Yeah, and to be clear, he's not speeding at like 100 miles an hour. He just drives off. Yeah, that's one thing that I thought was interesting about this portion of the video. He's clearly not speeding away. But Officer McKay jumps in his vehicle and gives chase. He is racing at a much higher rate of speed, in my opinion. Well, right, to catch up with him. With the siren and lights on. Just a few hundred yards before the Easton line, McKay passed Lico and slowed to a stop, forcing Lico's Toyota to a halt behind him. McKay turned the Tahoe around to face Lico's car and motioned for Lico to back up into uh, a dirt driveway. This is a wide dirt driveway owned by the McKenzie family. Lico gestured out the window with his hand indicating to McKay that he wanted to to pass or, as Caleb would say, proceed to his family's property. McKay was having none of this. Meanwhile, a gray Chevy Silverado pickup truck 
can be seen in the background of the dash cam footage, stopped on the shoulder of Route 116 and presumably observing all of this. Lico backed onto the dirt driveway and McKay paused for a few seconds and then advanced his vehicle. His bumper physically pushing Lico's car up against a front end loader that was parked there. I think it's safe to say he rammed rammed Lico's car. Rammed him and pushed him into this front end loader. Then suddenly the audio around this time kicks in and we hear the blaring sound of the siren. McKay enters the frame on the right side, striding up to Lico's open window and immediately releasing a heavy stream of pepper spray forcibly into the vehicle, spraying both occupants. McKay turns to jog away, and then an arm comes out of the driver's side window holding a handgun. Shots are fired in rapid succession, and we can hear McKay groaning in pain. Then the car driven by Lico backs up, turns, and drives off to the right, out of the frame. The dash cam video ends there, but this is not the end of this encounter. Here's what we know happened from multiple witness statements. One thing that gets thrown in here, Captain, that that may be of some interest to some is that apparently totally uncharacteristically of Officer McKay, he was not wearing his bulletproof vest on this day. Yeah, he was known to always wear his vest. So one bullet went through McKay's arm and four hit him in his side. McKay, likely in shock, stumbled across the road, dripping blood, trying to pull his gun out of his holster. And that's when Lico backed up and drove in his direction, running his car right into the back of Officer McKay. Caleb later told investigators that he thought this was accidental. After all, Lico was likely at least partially blinded by the pepper spray. Right. But then Lico backed up and ran the Toyota forward right into McKay. Now, now the Toyota is stuck because this vehicle is now on top of the cop. As stated in Bad Blood, if the first attempt was an accident, the second certainly was not, and I tend to believe this. I I tend to believe it. None of it's an accident. I mean, before you hit the officer with your car, you pulled a gun and shot him multiple times. This horrific event still is not over, sadly. The other vehicle we mentioned, the pickup truck that was sitting on the roadway a few hundred yards away, Witnessing this whole thing had two passengers inside. The driver was teenager Gregory P. Floyd. In the passenger seat was his father, Gregory W. Floyd. The senior Floyd walked over and grabbed Officer McKay's dropped service weapon off of the ground. He checked that it was loaded as he walked toward the Toyota's passenger side. And he raised his arm and he shot into the car, shattering the window and hitting the driver, Lico, in the head and the neck. The bullets whistled over Caleb's back as he bent over his knees, terrified. Floyd yelled to his son to call for help on McKay's cruiser radio. Floyd Jr., as we're calling him, he's not technically a junior, grabbed the radio in McKay's empty cruiser and radioed in, Officer down, officer down. I don't, you need to come. I don't know where you need to. 
you need to come. The police officer, I think he's dead. The people that the officer was trying to stop all of a sudden just started shooting at him. And then my dad had me stop. And then he tried to help the officer that was on the call. Now, according to Caleb, as soon as Floyd shot Lico without warning, Floyd ordered Caleb to grab Lico's gun and get out of the car or he's going to shoot him in the face. Caleb was convinced that Floyd would shoot him. So he decided to not touch the gun. He refused to touch the gun. In fact, not wanting to give Floyd an excuse to shoot him, which is probably the move that saves his life. Shit, man. I don't know if I would have been that quick on my head feet to come up with that in that situation, especially when you're, you're, I mean, you're terrified. Instead, Caleb sat in the dirt outside the car with his hands in the air, terrified and in tears. Floyd took Lico's gun from inside the car and then took off his shirt to make a tourniquet for the downed officer. So now Floyd is shirtless, his huge belly hanging out, holding two weapons, both pointed at Caleb. Dad bod. When Officer Philip Blanchard arrived on the scene and told Floyd to drop the weapons, he had to do so a number of times, including using some choice language before Floyd complied, but saying something like, easy, son, I'm quicker than you. Yeah, that's so strange. Then Floyd and Officer Blanchard hoisted the Toyota off of Officer McKay so that a nurse could give him CPR. McKay had several lacerations on his face, including having lost the tip of his nose. His skull is fractured. He had a shattered pelvis and, of course, the gunshot wounds. His intestines spilled out of a severe wound in his abdomen. As he looked on, Greg Floyd said about McKay, quote, he's fucked. The cops yelled at him to shut up. McKay is still alive at this time. You know, CPR is being performed right you can't have this guy in the background saying the guy's not going to make it people give up in those situations unfortunately the cpr was too little too late for mckay who was then pronounced dead at the hospital meanwhile no one at the scene checked to see whether lico had a pulse at this time he did not and he too was in fact dead and it's definitely a disturbing video to watch knowing that both these individuals lost their lives. That's what was strange for me, Captain, was going into it. I knew what the outcome was going to be, but watching it, it's, it's still disturbing. And it like, just happens so fast. It's, it's like chaos happens so quickly. You can't really prepare yourself for what you're about to see. So let's talk about Gregory Floyd, the man who so calmly walked up and shot 24-year-old Lico Kenny in the head. The man that's faster than you are. 49-year-old Gregory Floyd was a former Marine and off-the-grid backwoodsman. He and his wife and son, also named Gregory, lived just below the poverty line. Floyd had had 16 back surgeries and was relying on Social Security disability checks to get by. His wife was in a car accident and used a cane to walk, and she rarely left the house. The Floyds purchased their property with the proceeds of a disability settlement Floyd got after a back injury he suffered on the job. Most of their money went to pay for medications. Floyd was diabetic. He had a heart attack in 2006 
and was on 22 different medications, including antidepressants. The older Gregory Floyd, Father Floyd, had been arrested in Georgia in 1981 for selling PCP and pot and was prohibited by law from owning firearms, which did not prevent him from keeping lots of guns stashed away at his home. He and his wife apparently were both big gun enthusiasts. About 10 years before the fatal traffic stop, the police were sent out to the Floyd property when neighbors turned Floyd in for firing automatic weapons on his property at night on multiple occasions. They told police that Floyd became paranoid when he took his medications. Both sets of neighbors appeared to be afraid of Floyd. Obtaining a search warrant for Floyd's home, police found six guns. This is in a May 1997 search. Floyd handed them over without incident. But the next day, Floyd threatened to sick his attack dog on and shoot a meter reader who was just doing his job on the Floyd property. When police came to arrest him for this incident, Floyd went off on a rant about his constitutional rights. He raved to the cops, I know you wear vests, so I will have to put it right between your eyes. I'm an ex-Marine and I don't miss. While police were cuffing him, Floyd tried to knee one of them in the groin. He posted $150 bail and later pled guilty to attempted assault of a state trooper. He received a suspended prison sentence of one to three years on the condition that he stay out of trouble. It wasn't until after this conviction that his felony arrest in Georgia was uncovered, which revealed that because he had a felony conviction, he was not supposed to own any guns. So he was arrested again, and another search conducted of his home resulted in seven more guns being confiscated. Somehow Floyd managed to evade conviction for the threats to the meter reader and the gun possession charges, and things seemed to calm down for Floyd until this 2007 shooting of Lico Kenny. So he could have something, maybe a couple screws loose, or maybe it's just a crazy SOB. Maybe no screws at all. Right. <laughs> he, he lost all screws. <laughs> right. He's held together by duct tape and chewing gum. So back at the scene of the Officer McKay and Lico Kenny shootings, when Officer Blanchard asked Floyd if he was okay, Floyd said, quote, I'm fine. That was the 43rd person I've killed. I had three tours in Vietnam. I'm a Marine. I know how to use a gun. I don't know who the F he is. He's talking about Lico. I don't know who the F is under the car, meaning McKay, but goddamn nobody's going to run somebody over and just run them down two times right in front of me. I've been around the world and I'm not putting up with that crap. This is quoted in the book, Bad Blood. I mean, I, I don't know. Like you review this and you feel like you're, you're reading a movie script. Well, you know, it's an officer. So I, I mean, it takes a lot of balls to get out of your vehicle with no weapon after you see a officer gunned down or no screws as we pointed out. Right. And so, um, I don't know. Well, the day after the shootings, the New Hampshire attorney general held a press conference. 
that stated that Officer McKay's dash cam and radio calls had provided the following information. McKay observed a Toyota driving on Route 116 was speeding and had expired registration. I want to cut in for a minute here. I have no idea how McKay would have saw the expired tags, the expiration on these tags. Right. They're, they're, they're traveling toward one another. It seems like a difficult thing to spot. And I know that in some states they don't even put the tag on the front of the vehicle, but that that's just an, an aside here, right? Well, unless they, they do have computers that can read the license plate. Is, is it possible that something, uh, triggered it for him, right? That he didn't have to visual. I gotcha. That makes all you had to do was drive past him. You're right. I, I just wonder about the technology in an area that has three full-time police officers, but, yeah. but who knows? Anyway, he, he's got, he's got supervision either way. And he saw that it was expired. The, the statement goes on to say when pulled over the driver, Lico Kenny asked for another officer, then drove away. McKay pursued and overtook. McKay then pulled in front of Kenny's car, forced it off the road, and used pepper spray on the driver and his passenger. Kenny then drew a handgun and shot McKay, then ran him over. Another area man, Gregory Floyd, observed the shooting from his truck. He retrieved Officer McKay's gun. He then shot Kenny. When he told authorities, Kenny refused to put down his gun. The attorney general concluded, quote, Gregory Floyd's actions were justified based upon dangerous circumstances confronted with efforts to assist McKay, end quote. Floyd would not be charged, and Officer McKay died a hero. I wanted to make sure we read that statement because there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions, speculation, and suspicions regarding this whole thing that went down. Well, we have crazy Floyd saying that he doesn't know who Lico is or McKay, but there's some speculation that he actually knew officer McKay. Yes. I was looking for good proof on that speculation to which I could not find it. Could you? No, but I certainly saw the speculation. We're not talking about an area where a ton of people live there. And the, the other weird thing too, so you'd know the officers. Well, but then you have to wonder, does McKay know Floyd? Right. It seems likely Floyd would know McKay or know of McKay because you only have three officers. But there's also speculation that Floyd was leaving from the same place that Lico Kenny and Caleb had just left. What I heard as a rumor is Lico and his buddy are buying their booze, buying their cranberry juice and... Floyd sees them and actually calls McKay to let McKay know, hey, your buddy Lico is here and he has some booze on him. Mm -hmm. And then that's how McKay uh, started pursuing Lico. Now, again, I don't know other than the speculation I've heard in multiple places. I can't find that to be fact. Well, after the funerals for the two dead men, a groundswell of anger and protest began. Some people believe that Officer McKay was hardly the innocent victim hero, while others believe that Lico got what he deserved. And still others question why exactly convicted felon Gregory Gregory Floyd was permitted to shoot someone to death and walk away. 
Newspapers demanded the release of Officer McKay's dash cam footage, suspecting that he had antagonized Lico. Tensions ran so high that officials, they formed a committee to encourage an exchange of facts instead of rumors and grudges. The committee did not take sides, but issued a report that said that it's likely both murders could have been prevented if, quote, either Lico Kenny had more respect for the law or Bruce McKay had more skill at conflict management, end quote. Or both is where you take that statement a little bit further. Yeah, or if Lico Kenny wasn't carrying a gun. So I want to get your thoughts here because we discussed our thoughts a bit on the first arrest from 2003. Now we have this, this double shooting here where the first video, my very basic and general opinion of the two, the first video, Lico is annoying, defiant to the end. He won't let up. He's pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing the officer. I actually think that McKay handled the first incident very well. I, I don't know that I give him an A+. Plus. I give him like a B-, minus, which I think is acceptable. Right. I, I have like the a total reverse of opinion on this situation. I almost feel like McKay should have been in total control. I, I won't say that he got what he deserved. That seems like too cruel of a statement or a thought for me yeah, to yeah. even have. Yeah, that is. But it really feels to me like this is the reversal where McKay was really pushing the envelope and really could have just controlled this situation in a much better manner. No one had to be killed that day, let alone two people. Here's a difficult thing, though, is McKay knows Lico for now several years. We now know that his behavior, his antics, his aggression, his violence is ramping up. Mm. So you have to keep that in mind, that this officer knows this, this individual very well. I question how did he know Lico was there? I question was the actual reason. Uh, did he get a call from Floyd? Did he pull him over and then see that the uh, the registration was expired? And I was able to ask my father, retired police officer, retired detective, what do you see in this video? And one of the things that he thought was interesting was when you are following a car and you are the lone officer that you wouldn't make a move to get in front of that car. Protocol would be just to follow that car until backup comes or until that car stops. We don't see that here. That makes me believe that he knew Floyd was behind him, that he knew he knew Floyd and possibly friends with him because he makes a maneuver as if there's two officers there and there wasn't. Then you get in front of Lico and then you ram his car. Now, I don't know if that was an accident or if that was on purpose, but again, you know this individual. You're the officer. You're the one that's trying to, you should be controlling this situation, not escalating it, not throwing gasoline onto a fire. If you know that this individual is not stable, maybe not mentally stable, you are throwing gasoline on that fire by ramming that individual. And I think you can tell that by the passenger in Lico's car and, and the eyewitness. And then you go, and again, instead of waiting for officers, uh, instead of uh, waiting for backup, 
you go and instead of trying to talk to Liko, you go and pepper spray him, throwing gasoline on the fire again. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. 
Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious, from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers. Thanks for joining us in the garage and thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for telling a friend. That's right. I got a few thoughts here, Captain. Mm-hmm. And you're going to hear every one of them. We don't have time for your thoughts. <laughs> this is just like a weird, weird colliding of worlds here for me. Because what I feel like is we have four people in the middle of the situation. Well, five, if you include uh, the younger Gregory Floyd, who was driving the truck. The real victim to me seems like this Caleb individual that's sitting passenger seat in Lico's car. He seems completely terrified and almost frozen in the moment, not really knowing what to do, not knowing how to react. And here's the other thing. Had we had other individuals just not react, it wouldn't have gone this far. I feel like we have McKay jumping his vehicle in front of Lico's because he's coming up at the end of his jurisdiction, at the line that cuts off his jurisdiction. I almost feel like this is a situation where McKay thought, you know what? I'm going to pin him down inside my jurisdiction because he fled the scene. I'm going to do some uh, property damage to his, his vehicle and I'm going to get out. I'm going to pepper spray this kid. And when the other officer shows up, which I know is in route, according to my radio, or at least according to what we've been told was said, the audio is conveniently not there or maybe inconveniently not there. I don't know how you want to spin that, but the easiest thing to do would have been like you just said before the break to continue to pursue Lico Kenny. He's going to run out of gas or stop. Eventually we know, according to Caleb that he was intent on going to his family's property. You could have simply followed him there, stayed inside your vehicle And when the other officer arrived, the other officer could have taken over the situation. 
but possibly the other officer gets killed because I think there's enough evidence to prove that there was something happening with Leeko Kenny mentally, um, with his mental health. I think that, look, the, the victims are the family of these two individuals because both their deaths are caused by cause and effect and, and adding fuel to the fire and never backing down. It's almost like these two bulls that were on a collision course for the last four years. Right. And that's, that's what I'm getting at. Cause and effect. I think the most effective way to control the situation would have been to continue to, to follow the suspect and wait for the other officer to take over the situation. We can't get into what ifs after that. We, we just don't know. Um, but there is protocol that could have been followed. And I think that McKay went out of his way to not follow that protocol. I think he went out of his way to really turn into a bully in this situation where I didn't see that in the 2003 arrest. The other thing too, and I want to throw these other stories aside because I really wanted to form an opinion on what I thought of the situation inside of what we see on camera inside what we hear from the witness statements later. I didn't want to get into this whole Floyd and McKay were friends. I couldn't, I couldn't find any proof that the two of them were friends. It's just some speculation. And I saw a lot of speculation on that. The, The issue being here is I don't think the two types line up well to be friends. One, it doesn't seem like Floyd had any friends. It seemed like it would be very difficult to be a friend of his either way. It's a two way street. Yeah. The thing I argue is that the community is so small that it would be almost impossible not to think of them as acquaintances. And then the other thing too, is we have on the reverse of that McKay who by most accounts, his personality was he was black and white. He was wrong and right. And he wouldn't, I don't know that he would have been friends with somebody um, of Floyd's character or past. So that one seems a little weird to me. And that's why I, I wonder if we just have a weird situation where three worlds collide, where you have Kenny who seems to be spiraling out of control and then we have McKay, who, with inside this situation, is obviously losing control. And then Floyd, who knows when's the last time he had any control at all. It's just a weird, weird, tragic situation, all filled with bad, filled with bad behavior, and fueled with bad blood. Well, and to back up the cause and effect, we have a retired officer saying, "Hey, that's a maneuver to get in front of the person. That's not something you do unless you had backup." So he saw that as being wrong. He saw ramming Liko's car as being a way that you're escalating the situation. And then you get out. You're not protected. If you were so fearful, why isn't your gun drawn? Uh, Why aren't you trying to talk to the individual? You do none of that. You go up and and pepper spray. So those are multiple things that a retired police officer, which will normally always go to bat for a police officer, saying those don't make sense to me. Those aren't those aren't actions I would have done. Yeah, and I I tell you what, this might not be a a popular opinion to have, but I do believe that the the Floyd shooting Kenny, I agree with the decision that it was justifiable. I also think that really that committee broke it down to the best of what 
what I believe. Yeah, but uh, wasn't that ruled within like 24 hours? Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not saying, I never said that I agree with the time frame in which you release your, your decision. I just agree with the, the decision. Yeah, right. My two, my two problems is again, because you have a grieving family, take a little more time, try to be a little more understanding of the situation. And on top of that, when you release this vo- uh, video footage, why is the audio compromised? Was this compromised by Officer McKay or was this compromised by the committee who released this video? Mm-hmm. Because that, to me, seems suspicious. And and I think uh, the Kenny family has the right to go, hey, this, does, this doesn't make a lot of sense. On the same token... We have a family that has been dealing with the antics and the behavior and I think the mental instability of Lico. And I and I wish again, we just don't talk about mental health enough enough. And I think sometimes when and somebody's going down the wrong path, we, we start thinking that that's alcohol abuse or drug abuse when it really might just be a uh, imbalance and somebody that needs mental health help. Yeah, I I do like that committee's decision or or at least their statement of what they said in regards to both of these murders could have been prevented if either one of these individuals would have behaved differently or had more respect for the law or each other. Right. You know, I think that that is really what I see here as well. And then my thoughts on the audio itself, I almost feel like I would like a, a statement in regards to that, why it is what it is on the, the public view of the dash cam footage. I almost, my, my own personal belief would be that if it was compromised before it was released, I feel like they would just have removed all of the audio rather than have it kick on at the end to notify us that, Hey, it's, it's not there. And now it's here. I actually don't believe it kicked on at the end. I mean, I'm telling you it did unless somebody, when no, I mean, I've applied it to the video. I've watched it when when it starts to fade in. It's it's almost like uh, there's a gate, almost like there's a gate on the audio, or that the that the audio is just turned way down, and because something happens, whether it's the gunshots or the sirens blaring, that that's where why you can hear that loud peak of sound, but those low level of a car driving or McKay talking and radio radioing something in would be low enough of a volume that we wouldn't be able to hear. Right. And that's what I'm getting at. I'm wondering if that is something that McKay would have had control over inside the vehicle. Yeah. I just wish either one or both of these individuals would have had more respect for each other and, and, there's no reason either one of them should have lost their lives over this. But I guess that's not the complete end of speculation in regards to officer McKay, because there's some discussion out there that he may be involved or have some knowledge of another case that we've talked about several times on this show. And that's the disappearance of Mara Murray. And true crime garage was lucky enough to speak with Aaron Larkin, someone who has spent a lot of time looking into the Mara Murray case.
Aaron, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. You're the host of 107 Degrees, a podcast about the missing person, Mara Murray, and one of the leading experts on this case. I appreciate that. How did you get involved in the Mara Murray case? It was sort of a slow process, a slow build, but I actually was on the track team with Mara. We weren't friends, but I remember when she disappeared. And then a few years ago, I saw that there was this podcast and I started following up and trying to see like where the case was and learning more and saw that there was a lot of misinformation out there and thought I might be able to help in some way. And what's your degree in? Political science. And I have a master's in quantitative methods in political science and an ABD in a PhD program. So this was just kind of a labor of love. Yeah. I mean, I think that there was a lot of things that I identified with, with the Murrays. And the idea that my family could be going through the same thing was sort of a horrifying thought. So um, that was definitely part of it as well. So when did Bruce McKay show up on your radar as you looked into the Mara Murray case? Maybe like a year or two into it. I was looking through the dispatch logs and I saw that there was this officer who was unresponsive and at a, at a motel, like around 930, the night Mora disappeared. And I thought, oh, well, Mora was looking for a motel. Maybe I'll, maybe this has something to do with something. And so I looked other places where he was in the log and saw that he seems to have dropped everything that he was doing the minute after the 911 call came in from Faith Westman, where they first reported Moore's accident. And from that point, from 728 forward, he was essentially off radio and unaccounted for. So that's what was the first thing that made me a little bit curious about <laughs> what he was doing. So Mara wrecks her car in 2004. Mm-hmm. There's neighbors, and we know there's a bus driver that is calling 911 to report this wreck. Right. This officer, Bruce McKay, is responding to a suicide call? Yeah, so it was a pretty serious one, too, because the guy had had his guns confiscated by police earlier in the day, and there's actually a note in the log that says they don't think that they got them all. So then later on in the evening, he's threatening suicide and may have guns and may have... Um, some anger toward police. So I would think that that's a situation where, you know, it's pretty big emergency. Do you know what time that call came in? So that call came in just before 720. I think it was either 719 or 717 or something. But McKay was the first officer dispatched and that was at 720. So they dispatched him to respond to this uh, suicide call. Do we know if he would have passed Mara on the route to this suicide no. call? So there's no way to really know where he was when he was dispatched. Um, but there is some evidence to suggest that he may have been in Woodsville because he made a call earlier in the night around 7.08 PM that appears to be a call to Butson's liquors, which is in Woodsville. So it doesn't mean he was certainly doesn't mean that he was in Woodsville, but he may have been. And then you say that he he goes off radio around what time? 
Uh, so he's not heard after after he drops whatever he's doing and goes somewhere else at 7.28 p.m. He's not heard from for two hours. And dispatch contacts him, and he communicates that he's at a motel, but then doesn't communicate why and isn't responsive when they try to get in touch with him again. So basically the idea, once he hits your radar, is you see that there's a cop working in the department that should have been investigating this crash. I don't know if he should have been investigating it necessarily, but I do think it's quite a coincidence that he he cleared out of this call that he had been on his way to for seven minutes, seven or eight minutes before clearing it. So something had to have happened or, I mean, he might have run out of gas, like anything could have happened. But if he cleared it for a reason that was work-related, the only explanation would be that he was going to Moore's accident because there's nothing else that was occurring at the time. Nothing. So we know that multiple officers were dispatched to this call. Right. Is there any explanation of why he would be dispatched to this call and then not show up? Uh, Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I think it's possible they just decided not to send him and send somebody else in his place. Like, Within 15 seconds of him clearing it, there was another dispatched officer that was sent out. So it seems like they wanted three people there. Right. And um, and as to why why this third officer, the fourth really, and not McKay, I don't I don't know. I mean, I guess you probably know a little bit about McKay's personality <laughs> at this point. Maybe it's not the best situation to send him into. Uh, there could be a lot of reasons, but there's no, we don't know the answer. But it's on record that he was cleared from the call. Yes, we do. He was, he was, well, it just says it was cleared. So it, the implication is that he was canceled out of the call and we, we don't know why. And I actually went to the Littleton police department and got the police report of that incident just to make sure that there wasn't something wrong in the log and maybe he did show up, but that wasn't the case. There were only three officers and they were the other three officers that were listed in the log. McKay did not show up. Right. But are you saying that the department told him not to? Uh, I don't know whether they told him not to or whether he um, chose not to for some reason. The problem is that the dispatch logs are a little bit hard to interpret the shorthand of. And so I don't want to... I don't want to assume too much, but it right. does say in there that there was an officer that was had referenced that he was covering a town and asking for another officer to come out. It seems possible that some one of the officers was asking to have another officer be sent in his place, and it just so happens that that is what happened. The first police officer is on the scene with the Mara Murray crash at what time? At 7.46, according to the dispatch log. And we have no known whereabouts of Bruce McKay for roughly two hours. Yeah, and then for the rest of the evening as well. So even after he he did communicate to dispatch that he was at that motel, after that he didn't respond either. And he never... 
there's no record of him signing off his shift or anything like that. So pretty much the rest of the night, <laughs> we don't know where he was. Now, did they have to return vehicles at the end of their shift or did they just drive home in, in their own vehicle? That I'm not sure, honestly. Right. Um, I'm not sure. So other than this call that he was supposed to attend and he never showed up, and then we have no record of his whereabouts other than he claims he was at a hotel uh, with no explanation why he is there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it seems like he couldn't tell his department was at the hotel because I was taking a nap. <laughs> but other than that, and other than his behavior towards, because his behavior towards Liko was not the only person he was aggressive towards. Mm-hmm. There, there was other reports. What else, What other information do you find interesting about Bruce? Well, I think that for anyone that knows about the Moore Murray case, there's all these questions that don't seem to add up, like the timeline and whether or not there was another officer on scene uh, before the first official officer arrived and how Mora disappeared so quickly, why eight firefighters, two cops, and a neighbor all searched west of the accident, and no one even did a cursory search of the east, which was the direction that Mora was heading and that happened to be McKay's jurisdiction. So when you when you sort of plug in McKay and overlay him in this whole in the whole situation, some of these things start to make sense. How many eyewitnesses do we have claiming that they saw an officer at the scene of the crash before the official officer? showed up at the crash. So just one that I'm aware of, that's witness A. So she's the one that drove by approximately 10 minutes before the first reported officer and said that there was the police SUV nose to nose with the Saturn. One of the other things she said was that she she saw that vehicle a total of three times. Twice it passed her going in the same direction on the left. And the third time was at the accident scene. For that to have been possible, for it to have passed her twice, it had to pass her, go off somewhere, and then come back and double back. One thing that could potentially explain how, how and why that may, might have happened is if McKay's heading to, to this other call, so this Littleton call, he hears this accident come in over the radio and, and says, hey, I'm right in the area. I'll go go to that. He could have doubled back. And that's when she sees him the second time. And and then the third time was obviously the accident. But the timing works out pretty perfectly for, for that to have been the case. But we have no evidence of Bruce radioing in and saying, hey, I can go to this. No, we don't. But one of the things that I think I don't want to say like about this theory, but is different from some of the other theories that have been postulated in this case is that it is potentially falsifiable and you can follow up on it because what we do know is there's a 25 minute recording that the police have in Moore's file that has all of the dispatch chatter on it from the time that the, um, presumably from the time the time when one call came in for the next 25 minutes. So from seven twenty-seven to seven fifty-two, I guess. Right. And if he cleared it at seven twenty-eight, there's gotta be some chatter there. 
they they refuse to release that recording right now. Uh, it's unclear why. They refuse to release a lot of things. Yes, right. Which is unfortunate because it might answer this question. It could also answer some of the timeline questions. Uh, regardless, like this is something that can be followed up on. Well, and like you said, if he passed this witness A mm-hmm. to head to the suicide call, then another call comes in. And Bruce then thinks, I'm right around the corner. There's other officers going to the suicide call. Let me double back. Passes witness A again. Mm-hmm. Gets to the scene. But now once he makes contact or once he arrives at the scene with Mara, this would give him a very small window. About 10 minutes. To leave the scene. Yes. I mean, it's. It's it is short, but something something happened, and right. um, you know, ten minutes is it's not an insignificant amount of time, really. Could you tell me off the top of your head how many people were calling into nine one one at the time of the crash? Uh, there were two two calls. Uh, there was two, and then out of all the people that you've talked to, is do we have any other eyewitnesses other than those two making those calls? Not that I'm aware of. No. Because so we have no other neighbors that were possibly looking outside their window. Well, there was um there were the Marats, they were sort of looking out sporadically. They weren't like focused <laughs> and right. staring the whole time, but they they did look out a few times and see see somebody walking around the car. See they actually saw the car being moved. Right. During the 2911 calls though, we have uh, there's two couples, two married couples that are making the calls. Mhm. So we we have a, at least a total of four people watching the, the scene pretty intensely mm. or or less intensely. But my point being is that you have a 10-minute window that's not that large. You think that these individuals would keep checking out their window. Nobody ever reports anything that suspicious. But why mm-hmm. would you if another officer showed up, was there for 10 minutes, left and then you next time you looked out the window there's another officer you might not even know that that's a new officer exactly it like i think who better would be able to hide in plain sight and not necessarily um stand out just they look out their window they see blue lights an officer comes to their door they don't have any reason to think that it wasn't the same officer that they saw 10 minutes before when they looked out their window do we have any evidence uh, of uh, sexual assaults that Bruce might have been responsible for or any violations when he has pulled over other individuals? I mean, so there were, I know that there were a number of complaints about him. I don't know how typical it is for any given officer to have a series of complaints. I mean, I'm sure they all have some, um, but I think that his tended to be instances where he failed to deescalate situations and he was certainly, um, reprimanded for breaking protocol a number of times. I mean, not to be insensitive, but he sort of met his demise as a result of breaking protocol a number of times. <laughs> right. Following his own rules, be making right. up the law instead of enforcing it. 
yeah, operating outside of his jurisdiction, um, using his own personal vehicle to police stuff that really maybe should have given them a sign that he shouldn't have been a police officer. (laughs) But, uh, but then besides that, yeah, he did have a restraining order uh, taken out against him by his wife for domestic violence. And as a result, he shouldn't have had a gun at all, which is a problem. And according to Franconia police, they quote misplaced that record. (laughs) It disappeared. Yeah. It's funny how audio has disappeared Mm -hmm. with Bruce McKay and now these records uh, disappear and we have really no knowledge if, if, if the call to the suicide was canceled or if it disappeared Mm -hmm. and then, and then he goes off radio for multiple hours, comes back on radio with no clear reason why. And then he Mm -hmm. disappears again. Correct. And so, like you said, there was possibly some domestic violence in his past. Do we know if Bruce had any uh, substance abuse issues? Um, I, I'm reluctant to to talk about that because I, I don't know for sure. Right. I have. There are some indications that that could be the case, but. It's it's really impossible for me to say. Any other thing during your investigation of the Mara Murray case, anything else that has stuck out to you about Bruce McKay? Um, yeah, there's so I don't know if you read the part of about him being a, a prosecutor for for the town and for the state. So not only was he a police officer but he also prosecuted cases and called himself as a witness isn't that like a conflict of interest yes it is and i don't think there are any other states that do that but in new hampshire you can still be a a prosecutor and a police officer even despite the fact that you don't have a law degree so you can be a prosecutor you can be pretending to be a lawyer without a law degree right and without being held to the same standards as barred lawyers would be and all of that stuff but anyway, so he he would actually make money with every arrest. So because he can he can arrest, he can charge them and then he he makes the money prosecuting them. Right. So I think in that Boston Magazine article it said that he he had like 300 stops compared to the other two officers combined 11. And yeah, I think part of that is some obsession with being an authority and a power trip and maybe some sadistic (laughs) tendencies, but also he made money. It was just like basic. Like he just wanted to make money too. Right. So I think that, you know, when I, when I think about what could have happened if he did encounter her that night, I mean, did he try to arrest her for leaving the scene of an accident when she was just trying to make a cell phone call or, Anything, anything he could have arrested her for. But we don't have, so we don't even know if he showed up to tomorrow's scene and, no. and called that right. in. Exactly. But that could be on the audio file of the dispatch log that the cops are, are not disclosing to the, to the public. Could be. Anything else that you have uncovered about Bruce McKay? Um, so far, 
there's a lot of rumors and I'm reluctant to talk about the rumors because they are just rumors. I'm um, fine with the speculation. I mean, we're going forward knowing that they are rumors. Is there one that you can throw out? Well, for this is not a rumor. He he did actually take out a second mortgage on his house three days later. Okay. Um, after she disappeared, and then an additional line of credit for I think ten thousand dollars a month later. That could be entirely unrelated. Like I think two thousand four, the interest rates were pretty low, like historically low. So right. I mean, it could mean nothing at all. But I did I did think that was somewhat interesting. And as far as I can tell, and from talking to people in his world, they're not sure where that money went or what it was for. So that's something that I would if I had the ability to, I would look look into further. And then about that specific hotel, I mean, he was a single guy and he was known to stay at that hotel from time to time not really making any judgment there but it is a place that he seemed to frequent with with um female with friends yes but like actually uh females he'd go on dates with or whatever um are these paid female friends from what i have been told they may have, yeah, they may have been transactional. I don't know why I'm dancing around this, but <laughs> uh, because it's not proven and I, I want to be really careful about that, but, right. but yeah, they, people that worked there had noticed that he, he stayed there. Well, and it's, it's weird too. You wonder, you know, infidelity is, is very high when it comes to officers. Um, well, he wasn't married at the time either, so. Right, but but I'm saying the ones that are married, the the rate of infidelity is pretty high. So <laughs> it's so what's weird to me is you don't hear from your officer there, you don't hear from your officer that doesn't show up to a scene for two hours. When you do hear from him, he basically says, "Oh, by the way, I was at this hotel." <laughs> then you don't hear from him for the rest of the night. To me, that would be like some red flag. Yeah. But if this hotel was something that dispatch knew that McKay would frequent or other officers would go to from time to time, then when he calls back in after two hours and, hey, I was at the hotel, they go, oh, well, we know why he was there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, it well, seems funny to me that he's coming back and saying, hey, I was at that hotel, and it doesn't giant red flag for the department to go, Okay, well, that's great that you're at the hotel. Why? Mm -hmm. Why were you there for two hours? Why didn't you show up to this call? Right. So I did hear from Chuck West last year. He he did explain to me that McKay was at... What he told me was that he was there that night because he was responding to a theft that had been reported. And that's why he wasn't on radio. And that's why he was in in the motel that night. So I pulled the records for that incident and it had actually occurred several days before. And uh, McKay had filed that report away by Monday afternoon. And so I don't know if officer West just didn't, maybe he confused the police report date with the, uh, 
with the incident date. Right. But he he hasn't responded to my follow up questions yet. Um, but when I when I got those reports, the what I noticed is that there were more than a few times that McKay called in at that motel and for walkthroughs late in the evening. Right. <laughs> and I don't know what a walkthrough is. I like my I always interpreted that as when somebody comes home and they see like their door is a little ajar. Right. And they have the, the cops like go through and clear, basically make sure that there's no bad guys hiding out somewhere. But I don't know what that means for a hotel necessarily. Yeah, I I, I, maybe possibly the same thing. Yeah, maybe. Or, and I know, I know that they did have a bar and a restaurant at that point too. They don't anymore. But Right. So it could be a, a situation like I know in my small town that there was a restaurant that was connected to a bar that was connected to a hotel. Mm-hmm. And and that was the primarily uh, primarily a place that the truckers and a lot of people coming just for the night would visit. So mm-hmm. cops would multiple times a night, especially on like Fridays and Saturday nights, do walkthroughs of the bar. Yeah. So, so I think I guess that's probably what it is. Uh, it's a little unclear, but yeah, which is tough because when you're looking into this missing person case. And you have a couple things that don't sit well with you. You think that these would be answers that a department for me. Okay. We have this investigator poking her head around and bringing up some things to our attention. Why not just give her the answer? I don't know. I don't know. And unless you can't, well, that's possible, but I do know that, Last, uh, when the oxygen show came out, there was a, a person who, who came forward with a tip after seeing like the first episode, I think. And it had to do with McKay and somebody that lives up in the area. And the police took two and a half years to call her back. Wow. It, yeah. And so, and just my impression from speaking to them. I believe that they believe <laughs> that no cop could ever have anything to do with anything nefarious. Right. But I think that sometimes their bias gets in the way a little bit and they don't want to look into it because even just looking into it perhaps is offensive in some, in some way. No, I think there's a lot of cops that they're good guys. They're solid guys with solid morals. Just like my father was a, Mm -hmm. a street cop and then a detective for many years. And when you bring these things to his attention and having him look at Bruce McKay's videotapes, it doesn't make any sense to him. And it almost boggles his mind because that is not his personality. That's not his set of moral standards. That's not why he wore the badge to Mm -hmm. serve and protect. So it becomes this, this thing that they can't even, it's hard for them to wrap their head around. Right. And then they become very defensive of officers in in almost every scenario. When I sent the videos to my father about this case, I was expecting a laundry list of what Lico did and (laughs) what Bruce did, but within his rights as an officer. And that is not the feedback I got. The feedback I got was these actions don't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, law enforcement as a topic is very divisive 
in the Murray world. But, and of course you always have those people that think that all cops are sinister and the other side thinks all they're all heroes. Yeah. But I think if nothing else, what the McKay Lico situation proves is that there are two sides <laughs> to law enforcement and there are two sides in that area. And one of them that was on duty the night that Maura disappeared. Is it likely or not likely that Bruce McKay was involved in the disappearance of Mara Murray? I think that the most likely outcome is like statistically speaking is probably something we've never heard of and a person whose name we've never heard. Mm -hmm. But of the theories that are, are out there, I think that this one at least possible holds a little water. It, it does. And I think it's possible that answering some of the questions about what happened, what he was doing that night could potentially lead to answers about Mora. I think that there is circumstantial evidence for sure that he was headed to her accident. And that fact, even the detectives in her case have not disagreed with me about. They just say that there's no evidence that he was at her accident. Right. So there possibly could be evidence that would show us that, again, like we said, there. that he and canceled him being dispatched mm -hmm. to the suicide call, rerouted himself to go to this crash scene, shows up at the crash scene. We know that she's in a state that she didn't want law enforcement there. Even if he did, even if he did show up at the at the scene, there's no evidence that he did anything tomorrow. But right. I think it's something that can be followed up on and should be followed up on. And I think almost the worst case that I think is perhaps the most possible is that he did show up to the scene. She wasn't there. He kept going, but they don't want to let that out because of his reputation, right. because of how it could potentially like blow up in their face. Well, and potentially they don't have answers because Bruce is deceased. We, right. we do not have answers and possibly we'll never know what he was doing at that hotel for about two hours and then what he was doing the rest of his shift. Do you know what time roughly his shift ended that night? Uh, I believe that he was on the 4 to 11 or um, 4. Yeah, it, so it's like a, a second hard shift. To tell, but yeah, but it's it's unclear because he, don't, he never doesn't actually sign off. So I'm not, I'm not positive. So it's almost four hours, three and a half, four hours of his shift mm -hmm. that he's unaccounted for. And if, if that was my employee, I would want to know where they were and what work they were doing. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us here in the garage. What's the best way for a listener to dive into your investigation of Mara Murray? Probably the podcast. It's called 107 Degrees Mara Murray. What an interesting case. Mm -hmm. Do we have any recommended reading this week? Here we go, Captain. A big cheers goes out to New York Times bestselling author J.R. Ward. There are more than 15 million copies of Ward's novels in print worldwide, published in 25 different countries around the globe. Ward's latest novel, The Sinner, 
mentions True Crime Garage, and we are forever thankful to J.R. Ward. So check out The Center, available everywhere. And if you'd like to binge old episodes of True Crime Garage, check us out exclusively on the Stitcher app, and we have a bonus show called Off the Record on Stitcher Premium. Until next week, be good, be kind, and don't let it. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.